Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. Hello, and welcome to another unusual episode of Life in the Neurotypical Universe. This actually came from a presentation in a panel that I participated in with Disability In. And Disability In is who businesses go to to achieve diversity, inclusion, and equity in disability. And in this particular panel, it was myself and Brent Edmondson, VP of HR from Dell Computer. Let's just jump in. This portion is just my introductory statement before we actually joined the panel. So you'll just be hearing myself. I think you'll get some good value out of it. Hop on in and listen along with executives from all over the world. Disability in Logo appears. Inclusion Works logo appears. Now I'd like to introduce you to our speakers. Our first one is Tim Goldstein, Professional Services Senior Consultant, Looker Product, Google. Next is Nicole, which unfortunately she's unable to be with us during this presentation. And lastly, our third one is Brett Amundsen, Vice President, Regional Human Resources, Dell Technology. Tim, go ahead and take it away. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I guess if we could bring up probably my first slide, and we'll just start from there. Uh, first off, everything should know about me, other than what you said, is I am autistic. So you're going to be getting a perspective from the autistic view of how we see these things, which I'm guessing is going to be very different than what you may have heard from many other sources. First off, let's just start with what's neurodiversity? You know, a lot of us have heard the term, but there seems to be a lot of confusion of how to explain it and different people explain it in totally different ways. So let's just give a quick basis of how I look at neurodiversity as being somebody who is neurodistinct. To start with, you know, we all think that noses and ears and eyes can vary between people and that's just perfectly normal. But how many of us have thought about that our brains can vary from person to person and how they're shaped, how they're wired, you know, how they actually work? Well, the answer is, it's the most complex organ we have in our entire body. So why shouldn't it have as much variation in it as something as simple as a, a nose? Well, it does have that much variation in it. And further, those variations will dictate to a large degree how you perceive, how you process, and how you think about the world. So just a recap, real simply, of neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is merely the concept that there's a huge range of ways to think, which is driven through genetics, and that they're all normal for humans. So that's the main key on neurodiversity. Now, I like to explain it using this picture that you're seeing called the neurocloud. Because well, usually when most people explain this, they don't give you a picture. And I don't know about you, but I do go with that. A picture is worth a thousand words, and I'm sure you don't want to hear a thousand words from me about it. So we'll use the picture. The idea with the neurocloud is, as I had said, everybody, the entire range of human thinking is normal. 
Now, we might not like some of the ways that they think, but it's still normal that people think that way. In the NeuroCloud, we're simply trying to give a representation of it. Every mark in there is inside the cloud because you can't be human and be outside the NeuroCloud. You've got some neuro something or the way you think, so you're going to be in the NeuroCloud. Every one of those little marks in there and ticks that you see, there are different colors and shapes and all those things. What they represent are different ways that people perceive, process, and think about things. Well, you know, like most things, if you let it sit there long enough, things group, they move around, they clump together in, you know, somewhat similar things. And when we look at this chart, what you'll see is there's a very large group that has a similar you know, color scheme and such to it as far as the number of marks. And it's actually outlined there with a, a big, you know, kind of lopsided, uh, I don't know, it's not even oval, it's a lopsided thing. That would represent neurotypical. And all we're really saying there is the majority of people are neurotypical. And as you can see, it covers a wide range of thinking. We're not saying they're all identical. We're just saying that they think in similar manners but they certainly are individuals and have individual thoughts amongst them. Then we go to what are people that are not neurotypical? Well, I call it neurodistinct. And I call it neurodistinct for a number of reasons. First off, how do you recognize us? Because we think distinctly different than the norm. So neurodistinct makes perfect sense. Secondly, I personally don't like the word that is being used out there because I don't think from a marketing standpoint that it resonates well. And the word that you commonly and was originally used by Judy Singer, who created the concept of neurodiversity, is neurodivergent. Now, I think it's great in a research paper to use neurodivergent, but how would you feel if somebody walked up to you and said, you're neurodivergent? You'd think you're cursing at you or something. It's just a hard to understand word and it doesn't sound good. So. I use neurodistinct because isn't what this all about trying to make people who are different be appealing and want to, you know, you want them in the workforce? Well, do you want divergent or do you want distinct? I think distinct plays a lot better. So that's what's outside of the group. And you see the little red arrows pointing to the outside of, you know, the neurotypical. What's the important thing to take away from this? Well, one is neurotypicals are not special. They're not unique. They're not anything that's, you know, makes them you know, have all the, uh, we'll say, control over the world that they seem to have. Other than that, there's way more of them than there is of people who think in different styles. Second thing is, in the neurodistinct area, it's not just autism. Unfortunately, it's gotten to the point where when you say neurodistinct, very many people think you're talking only of autism. And we recognize that neurodistinct is different ways of thinking. That means ADHD, that means dyslexia, that means dyscalculia, that means all kinds of named groups and unnamed groups. I just look at it as, is it atypical compared to the way that the norm thinks? If so, they're neurodistinct. And the other thing to take away from this is, the further apart you are in the neural cloud, the more difficult it is to communicate. And you can see even in the neurotypical arena, you can get pretty far apart in the neural cloud with two neurotypicals. So it doesn't mean that just because they're neurotypical, they're going to communicate and commune you know, with each other perfectly. They're going to have struggles too. But the further apart you get when you get into the neurodistinct area, it's very different ways of thinking and processing give you an idea how different the ways of thinking and processing can be. 
I, like a lot of autistic individuals, have a tendency to keep eating whatever it is that I'm eating uh, for, I don't know, I usually go about a year and a half before it's time to change. And I was on this kick one time for, happened to be roast beef sandwiches on a particular type of bread, which was a potato bread. Now, my wife and I would go shopping and we'd go into the bread aisle and I would be standing in the bread aisle, going up and down, reading the labels because they never put it in the same place, trying to find my bread. Inevitably, she would just stand in the aisle and go, it's right over there, honey. And I'd sheepishly walk over, I'd pick it up, I'd put it in the cart and we would move on with our shopping. It took a year and a half. I finally had to ask her, how is it that we walk in the aisle? You just go, it's right there. And I'm still, you know, haven't even gotten down a tenth of the aisle looking at it yet. And what she said to me was, I just look at the orange circle that's on the end of the label. I'm not colorblind. I can see colors perfectly well. But guess what? My attention was focused on the words and I didn't even notice the colors. So all these year, you know, year and a half, while I've been trying to read the darn labels to get to the right brand and then get to the right, you know, version in the brand, she just said, oh, where's the one with the orange you know, circle? Uh, it's over there. There you go. You can see. How different is that as a way to perceive and process the world? She was perceiving and processing the colors. I was perceiving and processing the words. Yes, marriage has been challenging at times, but we have made it 35 years. So we work through these things. But I think that gives a good illustration of how different the thinking can be, which both points out why is it that you want an autistic person in that meeting room? Because you're going to get ideas that are going to be very different from everybody else comes up with. Now the question is, can you accept ideas that are completely different? Or is it not, nope, that's not what we do here. We always do the same thing. You don't fit. It's your choice, but you lose a lot of really good people if you do go with that, you know, last method of you don't fit. Can we go to uh, next slide, please? This deals with it's very common when we're talking about uh, autism and even a lot of the other neurodiversities that we talk about them in a manner that we refer to as, you know, being low functioning or being high functioning. So in other words, we turn it into being this continuum, almost as if your high functioning means there's like almost nothing that you have anything that's different or going to cause you a challenge. And if you're low functioning, then, well, you know, you just we need to institutionalize you. Unfortunately, that is not the way that it actually works. First off, if you look up the definition of what a syndrome is, was, you know, for autism spectrum disorder, uh, you know, it's called a syndrome. Well, what is a syndrome? A syndrome is not a continuum. A syndrome is a group of conditions that any particular person may have a different combination and at different levels. Wow, that's really different from a continuum. That's a multivariant piece now. So I was thinking one time, how is it that as autistic individuals, we can explain how to deal with us, where our strengths, where our weaknesses are in an easy to communicate manner to other people that don't know all about autism? For instance, a manager that you're working for, you know, a lot better if they understand who you are, and how to work with you than uh, if it comes as a surprise. I came up with this concept of interactional indicator. To me, what interactional indicator is saying is, this person has these skills and abilities that you, if you put them in a situation like this, they will be able to interact well. Or, you know, the indicators may say that would not be a different, a good situation. We have to pick a different situation. 
So what makes up the interactive uh, indicators? Um, unfortunately, the slide's too far away from me, but I'm hoping everybody else can read this, the, all the words on the slide. It's different things such as, do you have a challenge talking one-on-one? -on -one? Do you have a challenge talking in front of a group? You know, do you, uh, you know, have a challenge in planning? Uh, all those kinds of things. I basically went down the list of autism type traits, which I personally think are all human traits because all types of humans will display these traits. Just with autism, we have them clumped together. That doesn't make it autistic. It's just a human trait. We got a bunch of weird human traits. That's all. Um, so I just went down the list and I basically said, I don't care about the ones that have no effect on an interaction. You know, if I stand, I sit here and while we're talking, I just, you know, flap my hand a little bit. Nobody's going to get too worked up over it. You're going to listen to me. You're still going to get value out of it. So that I, I don't care about. It's the ones that are going to trip us up in our communication and relationship with each other that I cared about. And the way I set it up is when you go through and do the little survey instrument, it's set up so that anything that's a challenge gets a higher number. So when you see the chart, it's a more blue showing up under the point. Now, when you see those pieces that are on the right, those are actually my charts. And I break them into three different areas. One is trait, one's communication, one is social. And as you can see, I have very high points, which mean I struggle tremendously in those areas. But I also have very low points, which means I'm very good at doing that. That's why I can speak to you very easily. I can look at the camera as if that was your eyes. I'd be looking at your eyes. Again, not what you think of very often as autism. On the other hand, if you could read all the, the little things around the chart, what you would see is the ones where I struggle in would be things such as understanding how you're reacting to what I said and taking that in. So in other words, it's the incoming parts I have a hard part translating. It's not that I can't communicate very well going outward. And if people know that ahead of time, it very much changes the situation than if they deal with Tim, they say, geez, Tim can talk pretty well. He's you know just a normal old person. And then I can't understand him when we have a problem and things go off the rail. Because they made the assumption that because I could talk outward that I can pick up all coming inward. Not true. So interactional indicator, simple way to look through and say, hey, they're really good at speaking one-on-one, -on -one, but they're very power at uh, interpreting the emotional tone of the room, uh, those kind of things. Just think if you had a chart like that, just like you have a disk chart. I mean, does a disk chart help you manage your employees? Yes, you know more about them. How about an even more detailed part about how they really work? Would that help? Of course it would help. Unfortunately, we get stuck in this continuum. Oh, he's high functioning. Doesn't help anybody. Uh, next uh, slide, please. This deals with communication. And to me, communication is the number one point where we as autistic individuals get tripped up when we're in the work corporate environment. And I would have to say, first off, I've been fired many, many times. As a matter of fact, so many times that uh, I actually wrote a book on how to interview because I got really good at it. And most of all of those always happened because of a miscommunication. So what this is illustrating is on the ends outside of the little brackets is just different types of brains. You know, there's ones in there of words. There's ones that think more in math. There's ones that think more in pictures. I think we all recognize there's different thinking styles. 
So we take and on the outside, you don't know what thinking style it is. You could have either thinking style on either end. Now, to communicate, you've got to take whatever it is that's in your head and you've got to compress it and put it into these things we call words. And then we transmit those words somehow and they go to the other person. Well, here's where the challenge comes in. If we look at the uh, slide, the uh, bottom portion of the picture is dealing with somebody who is neurotypical in this scenario, talking to somebody who is neurodistinct that happens to have my particular expression. And this is not uncommon, but there's certainly people who can do a lot better at this than I can. So what happens is I am convinced that neurotypicals communicate in three modes simultaneously. There's words coming out and they have some meaning for them. There's tonality coming out, huge meaning there. <laughs> and then there's body language coming out. Well, that is wonderful and great if you can interpret all those things. You're getting a huge, rich amount of information to be able to make great decisions about the conversation. Unfortunately for me, you can see that brick wall, black you know, line vertically in that uh, bottom part. And my brick wall has little window in it that lets words in. But my brick wall doesn't let tonality in, and my brick wall doesn't let the body and facial expressions come in. So I go purely by your words. But how many times when somebody says something, do they use their tonality to totally reverse the meaning of the word? So somebody might say, oh, yeah, that's a really great idea. And by the way, I happen to be able to do the tonality because I was trained to do it by a vocal coach. Uh, that is not normal amongst the autistic population. Um, but that tonality right there is telling you that they're saying in words, it's a great project, but the tonality told you like, this is the stupidest project I've ever seen in my life. I don't get the stupid part. I just get the great project part and I go run with it. Guess what happens then? You get in trouble because they were really trying to tell you, don't do this thing. <laughs> now, conversely, if we're going back in the other direction, when I communicate, and again, remember, I've been trained to be able to put the tonality and such into my voice. That is not at all a normal, typical autistic uh, you know, presentation. And normally what you're going to get back is you're going to get words and there's going to be no tonality in them. They're going to be a very flat affect. And what happens on the other end, I'm convinced is neurotypicals are so convinced and used to having those three channels all the time that they take the words and they manufacture the other two for you because they know they're supposed to be there. And now, instead of going off of the tonality and such that I put in that I'm intentionally modifying something with, you go off of what I refer to the emotional life of words. You know, if we say certain words, they can have an emotional meaning that has nothing to do with their dictionary meaning. And one I use all the time is the word beach. When you say beach, of course, most people like light up, it's happy, it's vacation time, it's relaxed, it's great. But what's the dictionary definition of a beach? Water touching land. Wow, that's really exciting, isn't it? So you can see where if the person is using a word that means exactly what they want and they don't put the right tonality in it to make it sound friendly, you may interpret completely differently than they intended it. And then on top of all of that going on, causing all the troubles in communication, you also have the problem that Remember how we started with, you know, an idea in our head, whichever way we thought, we compressed it down into a word and then we, you know, shot it across. Well, now you've got to 
uncompress it, hope you're running the same algorithm as the other person ran, and then hope whatever they sent you can decode into your style of thinking from their style of thinking. You know, when you look at how complex communication truly is, it's amazing that any of us humans can communicate with each other. But the big takeaway I want you to get from this is when you're dealing with neurodistinct individuals, particularly autistic individuals, do not try and intuit what their intent is by the way they sound or the way they're holding their body position or something. Because 99.9% .9 of the wrong, right, or time, you'll get it completely wrong. Because to them, they don't even know they're doing it. It doesn't mean anything. They're not, it's not intentional. So if you use that as being your barometer like you would with a neurotypical, you're going to walk away the wrong conclusion. And with autistic individuals, it's often the conclusion of what arrogant jerks those people are, um, which I'm sure you've all dealt with the arrogant jerk, particularly in the technical world. And funny part is, frequently they're autistic. Uh, next slide, please. This is actually the last thing that I wanted to kind of bring up. You know, in my uh, both career and, and growing up, and again, I wasn't diagnosed until I was I was late uh, in my 50s that I was diagnosed. So most of my life and my entire school life, I had no clue I was, I was uh, neurodistinct that I had autism. But what I heard my entire life was, why can't you act like everybody else? Uh, why can't you be like everybody else? Or, you know, 20 different variations of that exact same thing. And I was thinking about this for a while once I understood that I had autism, and it dawned on me why I can't act like everybody else. Well, first off, I'm autistic. That makes it a little challenging. But the major reason is nobody can tell me. Nobody ever told me in words I can understand how everybody else acts. The way they act to me is totally illogical and makes no sense. So if you can't explain to me in a way that makes sense, how am I going to act the right way? So I came up with a model for myself that made sense to me of how I could understand it. So I'm going to just share the model quickly. And the model is, think of a small, like, indigenous-type tribe. You know, normally 25, 30 kind of people, chief, ultimate control of the thing, very, very rigid hierarchies. That, to me, is how neurotypicals work. Would you talk bad about the uh, chief in front of the chief? No, you definitely would not. You would get thrown out in the jungle and, you know, the crocodiles will eat you. It's not a good thing to do. Now, the problem is we're not part of the tribe. We're the nomads that travel between the tribes. We like tribes. We got nothing against tribes. Tribes like having to show up because we really bring cool and unique and, and different things to them. But then at some point they start worrying about us because we definitely are not them. And by using that model, it's kind of given me a lot better way to just look at it from a macro sense and say, what's going on here? And if I think about tribes, what's the worst thing that could happen to a tribe member? To me, I think the number one worst thing that can happen to a tribe member is embarrassing them in front of the tribe. And let me tell you, us autistic individuals are great at embarrassing people at the wrong time. So this helps me out with that model because now I can actually recognize how it works. Is it a simplification? Of course it's a simplification, but you know what? It's 10,000 times better than what I had before, which was zero. So that is my model and concept of the tribe. So just think about that when you're uh, you know, working with neurodistinct people of, well, even think about it when you're not working with, when you're working with neurotypicals. 
that's a lot of why when you bring everybody in the conference room and ask for the best ideas, nobody says anything because it's a tribe thing. They're all waiting for somebody important to speak so they can agree and not, you know, be on the outs. So there's a tip from the, uh, you know, the neurodistinct back to the neurotypical of, hey, this is what we notice all the time. You have great things. Speak up and deliver them, please. That's really all I wanted to share with you was uh, kind of just some different concepts where the big hangups uh, seem to come with, you know, about and a model that you can kind of think about looking at neurodiverse versus neurodistinct. Think about tribe and nomads. There's certainly a relationship where they need each other. But boy, there can be some difficult times if the wrong tribe has the wrong person show up at the right, you know, wrong time. Well, after this, hopefully you got a few things that you can take home and, you know, make use of in the office or nowadays make use from home back to the office. Uh, next up, though, we have uh, Brent uh, Amundsen, who is VP of Human Resources at Dell and uh, going to share a whole bunch of experience. Dell is uh, wonderful in that they have a, a very nicely developed and, and mature program. So we'll get to hear some wonderful things about how a program actually gets happening. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in a Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. Hey, it will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com, where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe.